0: Hey okay, hey Marissa.
1: Testing.
0: We're not testing. We're just Oh, we're, we're
1: already j- live. This is happening? Yeah, we're recording. Okay. Oh, okay.
0: Hello. Hi. Uh so I'm going to ask you some flashcard questions based on this t- uh Korean TV show okay. called Reply 1987. So you just you just answer based on like how what you would do if you were this person, okay? Do
1: I have to imagine that person in 1997? I haven't seen Reply 1997.
0: Yeah. You don't have to know anything about it. Okay,
1: so as if I was which person, myself or another person? (laughs) Because I can be a character. You don't have to
0: be a character. You don't have to be a character. Like, what would Marissa do if she were in these shoes? Okay,
1: if I was Marissa,
0: got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's say you're a 17 year old girl in high school in Korea, you're a student, you're obsessed with this band. Uh, called HOT and you're like obsessed with them you have like all their posters you're obsessed course, and um yeah yeah, yeah 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 so you're like obsessed with them and you know you go out to their concerts and stuff you go and like stock their houses and shit so you come home very late and then your dad is yelling at you and you mm-hmm. keep fighting with him and then eventually he gets fed up with you so he cuts all of your hair off what do you do okay
1: first of all my dad wasn't around when I was growing up, but if he did, what do I, he cuts off my, all my hair? Oh, single tear. Single tear. I would, that would totally be the appropriate use of a single tear. Single tear and then, um, okay, it's still recording. Uh, then I would go to my room and I, I might write a poem in my, my diary and maybe I would write a letter to H.O.T. and be like, H.O.T. save me from this patriarchal bullshit okay very
0: good answer right, i like that all right let's say uh, you and your best friend are obsessed with the band h.o.t right mm-hmm. but then one day you find out that your best friend is actually listening to the, your favorite band's rival band and she has like posters of their stuff all over her room and stuff and you feel really betrayed what do you do
1: Oh, I feel betrayed. Well, you're telling me I'd feel betrayed. Because me, as a person, I wouldn't feel betrayed. I'd be like, you know what? This is a good opportunity for me to have more H.O.T. time to myself. Then I wouldn't have any competition for my friend. And then I could be the, like, her suit, like, the biggest fan of H.O.T. I wouldn't have any competition, right? But if I felt betrayed, I'd be like, I guess we're not friends anymore. H.O.T. is the only group of people who is going to support me in life okay. and if she left me like that you know that would just further confirm that this world is meaningless bullshit all right. except for HOT except for
0: H-O-T. Except for them okay mm-hmm. all right okay so let's say um okay you're you're not this girl anymore you're a 17 okay. year old boy now okay? okay um you actually like the 17 year old Ooh. girl <laughs> that- that's how 17 <laughs> yeah, year old boys like- sound like yeah
1: it's, like, a little bit more internalized. Right? <laughs> so. it's like, a boner in my pants
0: that I can't share with anyone. <laughs> it's, like, it's there. Yeah. So he, he, okay. So you, you, as this 17-year-old boy, you, you have a crush on this 17-year-old girl. But then one day you find out that your older brother also has a crush on her. What <gasps> do you do? How much older is he? That fucker. Like, almost 10 years older.
1: Oh, shit. Oh, okay. It depends if I'm an alpha or beta. Am I a middle child or am I the second?
0: you're the second.
1: Do I have a younger sibling? Ooh, I might just be like, you know what? He is better looking. He is going to know what to do with, with all that. And I'm not ready, but you know, I might let him go for it and I'd watch and I'd try to learn, but secretly inside I would be broken knowing that you know, I'd be like, I have taste, and I, you know, I have taste because if my brother likes her and I like her, then I'm going in the right direction. But at the same time, secretly, I would never forgive him. I would let him have her for sure, but I would never forgive him ever. <laughs> to the
0: grave. <laughs> okay, that's intense. Okay, thank you. Uh, I love that answer. Final question uh, You're that 17 year old girl again, okay? Uh-huh. Um, you go to your car. You open the back seat and out pops your mom and dad because they were fucking. What do you do? Oh,
1: I have a car. <laughs> and they fucked in it. I'd be so mad because you know how much work I would have had to put to fucking get that car. I would be so mad. I'm like, you fucking have a car. You didn't help me get this car. And now you want to fuck in my car. First of all, you all haven't been talking in a long time. And now you're coming out here trying to try to start some shit, trying to make some siblings. I would be upset. But you know what? There's a part of me that's, well, if I was this girl, I probably wouldn't be as capitalistic as Marissa. But Marissa would have been like, y'all owe me some gifts. But if I was this girl who was obsessed with H.O.T., I would probably back away, close the hatchback back away because it's a hatchback for sure you know (laughs) and I walk away and I go by myself um, like one of those yogurt drinks at one of the, like the late night yeah. stores. And uh-huh. I, t- I talked to the guy who's like kind of creepy and maybe has a couple pimples. He's like, maybe like 30, but has like adult acne. Uh-huh. And I talked to him and he's secretly into me, but I don't know what to do because I just saw my parents fucking. And in the end he gives me the, the Yakult or the probiotic drink or maybe the banana milk for free. And I'm like, Oh shit. And momentarily I'm distracted from the fact that I just saw my parents fat fucking by the fact that I got a free banana milk. Uh, And then I return to my existential dread.
0: Thank you, Marissa. You're you're welcome. (laughs) You're welcome. Totally. Welcome to K-Drama School. I'm your host, Grace Jung, and class is now in session. A show called Reply 1997. It is written by Yi Wujang and directed by Shin Won Ho. And they collaborated on the other two reply shows, Reply nineteen ninety-four and reply nineteen ninety-eight. Reply nineteen ninety-seven came out in twenty twelve on TVN, and that was during a time when people did not have that high of an expectation for this show because it was on cable. And in 2012, Korean cable ratings didn't really matter too much. Like, they were not breaking enormous records at the time. But after the success of this show, it turned a lot more heads and their attention towards cable, both from the industry and with viewers at home. The show is written by writer Yu Jung, who started out as a variety show writer. She wrote for some very very well-known, legendary Korean variety TV shows, like Heroine 6, which was a comedy variety show that aired from 2004 to 2006 featuring six uh, female comedians. Um, some of them were more like actors or singers, but for the most part, they were comedians, and it was a hilarious show. It was amazing. Uh, Lee also wrote for Two Days, One Night, or Il which was on KBS. She wrote for Season 1, which is the um, original sort of like groundbreaking series at the time that aired from 2007 to 2012 and it featured some big names at the time like Kang Hodong, Eun Won, Lee Suk Kim Jong Min and uh, that, that show eventually went through multiple revamps and recastings and in Korea, what they do is whenever they revamp a show by recasting people, they call it a, a new season, like season two or season three, season four. So, because of some scandals associated with Kangodong, which was for tax fraud or tax evasion, and Yisugun, which was for gambling. Like I said, gambling in South Korea is illegal. And then, much later, there was a sexual assault case linked to Chung Junyoung, which, if you follow K-pop news, you would know this very well. Uh, so they had to um, sort of cancel the show and then revamp it with with new cast members. Yu Jung wrote on other very successful variety shows like Qualifications of Men and Grandpa's Over Flowers. The format for Grandpa's Over Flowers got picked up by NBC in 2016, and that was remade into a show called Better Late Than Never for American audiences. And that was conceptually the same thing. It's about a a group of old male celebrities who travel and bicker throughout the whole journey. And Will Shatner and Henry Winkler were, were on that show, and it lasted two seasons on NBC. Yu Jung wrote a couple other shows you'll recognize that are currently on Netflix, uh, at least in the. US territories. The first is called Prison Playbook and the other is called Hospital Playlist. Yujung's shows always get their time context from music. So whatever whatever music was popular in the in that era, that contemporary period that she's writing from, like music sets the tone. But unfortunately, uh, in the. US, This is US territories only. I don't know about other countries, but um, the Reply series is also on Netflix currently. And Netflix did this horrific thing where they removed all the music cues, the original music cues that were made in the Korean production. So the intertext of the music that indicates like in terms of timeline like oh this is from 1997 or 1998 or the year 2000 like music is the big indicator and netflix removed all of it and i don't know whether to blame netflix for this i don't know whether to blame cocoa for this uh regardless that is unacceptable Okay, to do that, especially if it's a series where the music plays a major role. I mean, music is like a whole nother character in the Reply series and to remove them or replace them with bullshit other kinds of sounds is that's criminal. I mean, it's really fucked up. All right. I mean, you're ruining the show. You might as well not even make those shows available in these territories if you're going to go and do that. So I say boo to Netflix and boo to Cocoa for making that horrendous and heinous mistake. Uh, If you can't get the music clearances for these shows, then don't bother distributing them because you're not doing it justice. You're being irresponsible with these shows. So that's my soapbox moment there. Prison Playbook was slightly different in that Yu Jung was credited as the creator and not necessarily the writer of that show. So music didn't play too large of a role in that show, even though it's called Prison Playbook. But in all three of the Reply series and in Hospital Playlist, you'll notice that the characters are very influenced by the, the popular songs of that era. I love the Reply series because while the shows do not have seasons, they do feature recurring cast members and share intertexts with overlapping storylines in every single show. The parental figures played by Song Dong-il and Yi il are in all 3 of the shows and they have they use their actual names, Song Dong-il and Yi il and while the children are played by different actors and they all have different characters, these parental figures remain consistent on all three of the shows. So Sung Dong Ye actually plays a doppelganger in Reply nineteen ninety four of himself from the other the earlier show that he was in. So it's just um these like weird sort of wacky gimmicks. And I attribute that boldness to Yu Jung's variety show writing days because Korean variety T V is all about weirdness and the weirder it is, the funnier it is and the more memorable it is. Reply 1997 follows a group of high school kids. Uh Unji or Unji from the girl group A-Pink is the female protagonist on the show. And she appears alongside Seo in Hoya from Infinite, Shin so and Eun-ji-won, and lee Xian. Reply 1997 has a closeted gay character named Jun-hee played by Hoya, and he's a very introverted character. He's in love with Yoon-jae, who is the male protagonist on the show. And although yoon eventually ends up with si uh, she one knows about Junie's uh, queer identity and um, is very respectful of it and supportive. And while the show's narrative was very hush hush about Junie's gay identity, I still liked that a gay character was on this show, right? At the very least, there was an appearance. And you get another queer character in Reply 90- 1994, but his queer identity is greatly muted, it's greatly uh, suppressed. Uh, even more so than it was in Reply 1997, so I don't know why that kind of choice was made. It might have something to do with producers um, and the great popularity that these series was getting. So either way, um, I-, I didn't think that was too cool. But these are small steps forward, so they can be recognized at the very least. The show's protagonist, Shiwan, is obsessed with the boy band H.O.T. And for those of you who know H.O.T., congratulations, you're old as fuck. If you don't know who H.O.T. is, you should probably gain some awareness of the group because they are the first generation K-pop boy band that marks the early era of boy groups in K-pop Hollywood explosion of the of the 1990s. And because of that, you have cameo appearances from Muni jun and Tony Ahn. They're both H.O.T. members. And I also love that the female comedians were on the show. Like female comedians like Ahn Young-mi and Shin Bong-sun, you know, they make cameo appearances. You also have a, a cameo appearance from Shin Dong-yup who is a uh, comedian and MC, he's an actor and he was a big part of 1990s Korean television. So the show has a lot of that late 1990s pop element, you know, it, it it's like a very it's a very loud and clear shout-out to those markers from that era. She wants obsessed with SES as well. If you know SES, um, you also know HOT. I mean, if you know SES, you probably sing SES songs at Norebang when you go there. Like I, I <laughs> All the millennials um, who grew up around that era, they know SES, and they will sing SES songs at Norebang. Uh, I thought it was really cute how the female characters on Reply 1997 would style their hair like Pada from SES with the white pom-pom hair ties and the three strands of hair <laughs> that fell on her face. is so cute. And then um, also this rivalry between SES fans and Finkel fans, or the rivalry between HOT fans and jex Kiss fans, right? Uh one making this appearance on the show has this meta quality because he was a part of jex Kiss and a major part of 1990s korean media and he's like on the show watching tv with these younger kids who are playing basically the same age like they're all playing high school students and they're watching Eun Jiwon on television or in movies um and eunjiwon's sitting there just playing a different character it's just so weird and interesting i loved shiwon's character because she's so ordinary and yet very unique. Uh, I found her to be extremely relatable because she's not the smartest in her school. She's not um, like the most gorgeous person in her group either. Uh, In fact, that's an ongoing joke. A lot of the men make fun of her very plain look, but she's hilarious and she's loud. She's assertive. She's passionate. She knows what she wants. She goes after it. And I find that admirable. And then eventually she grows up and becomes this variety show TV writer, which I guess is somewhat autobiographical of the show creator. I love that this show is set in Busan. Eunji has a very real uh, Busan dialect, right? The, The Southern Gyeongsang Province dialect, and she brings it out and executes it beautifully on the show. Um, in Guk does the same. He grew up in Ulsan, so he has this great, uh, Namdo dialect. And that to me is, it makes me feel at home because I grew up with that Gyeongsang dialect. My my dad is from Goseong. My mom is from Hapcheon. I was born in Busan. So I definitely recognize that dialect. And when I hear it on television, it makes me feel at home. Anyway, I thought it was very admirable to have this kind of heroine on TV where like looks and brains don't matter at all. I think that's a noble message because the reality is those things don't really matter. Unfortunately, those kinds of elements started to slip away from... The, the, the scripts in the other two series uh, because they casted very beautiful and skinny women as the protagonists on those shows. But um, I liked that Reply 1997 didn't really emphasize those aspects about femininity. And it was because of the success of Reply 1997 that we have Reply 1994 and Reply 1988, each of which got better and better in terms of storytelling and production. All three shows have similar themes, though. One big consistent theme is that whoever the female protagonist ends up marrying remains a mystery man until almost the last episode. And this is because, um, with each show, there's usually just two girls and then like four boys. Um, In Reply nineteen eighty eight, it was different. It was one girl. Oh wait, no. I guess there were two girls because um, Hades' character has a sister, but. For the most part, it was just like two girlfriends and then four boys. And it was always like, who's going to end up with who? Like that kind of thing. Um, But, you know, honestly, I just find this whole like notion of making marriage the win marriage as the end game to be a bit of a shitty thing. Like, I think it would be way more radical to have your female protagonist be a single woman in the end. You know, I want more Korean dramas try and do this. I want to see more movies and TV shows in Hollywood do this because marriage isn't always a win. Marriage is also a huge compromise in many ways, and producers never frame it as that. They always make singlehood appear like a compromise in life, and I disagree with that. I find singlehood to be um, incredibly liberating. So stop ending women's narrative on marriage. How about that, you know? like why not end female protagonists narratives with freedom or divorce or just satisfied to be single you know like why why can't we have that you know we have heroes in mad men and in breaking bad like they end up single you know divorced and divorced and dejected but they're still heroes right anti-heroes and um I don't think uh, a woman's singlehood should even be antagonized as like an antihero quality. It should just be like, oh, this is a win. <laughs> Today's guest is Julaine Lee. She is a Korean American poet based in San Francisco. Her book is entitled, Not Your White Savior. She is also an adoptee who grew up with a white family in the Midwest and a lot of her experiences as such are in her book, which is amazing. And I can't think of a better way to bookend the last day of AAPI Heritage Month than to have this conversation with Julaine. So what a treat. Let's talk to Julaine. Wow, so three years goodness yeah you moved up there for work I suppose Mm
2: -hmm. okay
0: Hmm. and uh how's it been (laughs) did you live in San Francisco before or was that like a new thing
3: no so when we met I you know I was living in Long Beach so I lived in Long Beach for five years I moved there from Minnesota where I grew up right Um, and so then I, yes, I moved up to the Bay area for a job, which I actually Mm -hmm. just left and started a new job. Um, and then, um, no, I had never lived in the Bay area before. I wasn't looking for a job. I was not trying to move. That's for sure. I was pretty happy in Long Beach. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the opportunity worked out, and I'm glad it did because I'm pretty happy up here, too. I miss L.A. I miss Long yeah. Beach, for sure. But, yeah. um, no, it was, it's been a good change, and I just started a new job this month, and um, that's been good, too. So
0: Congratulations.
3: Is that the teaching job you mentioned? Um, no. So, I left teaching a while ago.
2: Okay. Um,
3: now I'm working for Stanford Children's Health as a senior data analyst in human resources okay and um yes yeah, been i just finishing up my third week you know, oh and wow they you know a lot of times when um i've worked different places it's like oh bring your whole self to work and we care about you and everything and you know and there's but there's also, I feel like, kind of some unspoken rules about just kind of leave certain things at the door. Yeah. And, you know, the, um, the trial for Derek Chauvin was going on and the verdict came in this week and our HR leader, our chief um, HR officer, she sent an email like, Tuesday afternoon and said the verdict is in. It hadn't... We didn't know yet what it was, but they knew that it was going to be read that afternoon. And she said we're going to create some time tomorrow afternoon for a healing circle. It's optional, but, you know, this has been, you know, a hard Mm. time for a lot of people. So I just appreciate Mm. that they, like, you know, are willing to have, you know, space for these conversations. And then Mm. yesterday they had another... um, I guess it's a monthly... Series, which is usually more focused around patient care, but then they used the time this month to talk again about you know different people's experiences with you know how they're dealing with not just the pandemic, but also again this specific week because of where it came out. And um, our our HR leader again spoke, but also our CEO, Mm -hmm. um, and then. Um, another um, executive as well. So again, I mm-hmm. just appreciate that they were like super transparent um, about yeah. like what they struggled with and, right. you know, and just that we need to, you know, have these conversations in order to, you know, really support each other. So for like, sure, the first time I've worked anywhere where they're just like, yeah, we're going to talk about this. It's not about having the perfect conversation or having all the answers right now, but it's exactly it. It's about having the conversation.
0: Yes. Yes. No, that's beautiful. And that's so like California in a way that's so Bay Area in a way like, um, yeah, it's like very, you know, progressive Um, and, you know, like, I don't know if it's of the times or I don't know if it's, if it's specific to the local culture, but I would say it's a mix of both, but 80% of it is kind of that Bay Area vibe you know, that that particular kind of Bay Area progressivism that I note, like, because, you know, like, I grew up in New York, but I, I, you know, and New York is a very liberal place. However, um, I still, you know, like, up until six months ago, back in New York, when I was visiting, uh, there were still people who were very resistant and i'm talking about liberal progressives right they were very resistant to concepts like they them theirs and non-gender binary yeah yeah and i was just like why why are you against that you know and they were just like it's ridiculous like i don't get it it's like a gender is you know self-explanatory i was like but it's not always and that is why this concept exists right so in w- with certain regard uh i would say um the bay area is a lot more progressive than new than new york in some aspects and even you know mm-hmm. the w- whole weed culture too like mm-hmm. just the fact that new york allowed it like literally like yesterday <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah yeah <laughs> For exactly. recreational weed it's so yeah. like y'all are such squares y'all are so uptight new york you know <laughs>
2: Who knows why?
3: Yeah, I wonder why that is. But Mm. I mean, when you're talking about pronouns, because the previous um, employer I was at is a health tech startup, very small. And so, Mm
2: -hmm.
3: you know, just like, how do you address diversity when you don't have like the affinity groups or the business resource groups, you know, for Asian Mm -hmm. employees, Black employees, Latino employees. And Mm -hmm. so I had gone to a session. Um, around, like you know, diversity and specifically yeah. LGBTQ. And I, I asked. I said, "What do we do as a small organization?" And right. and the speaker said, "You know, you can start by just in your LinkedIn profile, just don't just put your name, put your pronouns, mm-hmm. and put that in your email signature." And and I did. And um, when I was interviewing a candidate too, I I tried to start by when I introduced myself, just say my pronouns too. Right. And I'll never forget there was one person who, they said, you know, when you introduced yourself and you shared your pronouns, that just meant so much to me. Yeah. And I was like, wow, you never know the power that that can have. And oh, yeah. i noticed a few um, of my, you know, uh, new colleagues that, like, their email right. signature will also, you know, use their they use their pronouns with a link to, you know, more information around, you know, the importance of using pronouns. And so I. Yeah. Again, grateful that people are, you know, using, you know, opportunities, you know, as, as, you know, mundane as your Mm -hmm. email signature, but as Mm -hmm. a way to kind of open up the conversation, it's not required that everybody do that. But Mm -hmm. again, it's, you know, an opportunity to educate people and, you know, hopefully others also feel more comfortable then too.
0: And that is how we normalize it, by integrating it into our day to day, right? Mm -hmm. And... Um, not treating it like an event, but just it's part of our current daily life. And right. yeah, I, I say that that is a huge incentive. If somebody in that space um, who feels marginalized senses comfort, liberation, understanding, and recognition, I mean, then why should we deny them of those feelings, right? Right. Right. Especially when they lead a marginal life. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
3: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. I like that. And I know like what a diehard um, activist you are, you (laughs) know, like in (laughs) so many, so many facets, you know, like uh, I I still remember when you invited me and some other local, like LA um, Korean Americans to your, I think it was like a poetry reading, um, but it was like in conjunction with the, um, the April 19th, this haiku mm-hmm. event, right? Mm-hmm. Or is it April 29th? Yes. The, the, mm-hmm. um, I don't, I mean, it's, it's wrong to call it riots, but there, right. there was a social uprising, it was a civil right. uprising in Los Angeles, um, which is, you know, um, Uh, problematically called the LA riots Mm -hmm. but you know it was basically an event that brought together Korean Americans and black Americans into one space and there was this kind of like artistic expression um, Mm -hmm. and sort of a union and gathering and then afterwards we all ate Korean food together and, (laughs) um, and I just remember you with your chopsticks and your Bowl, like you brought your own utensils and i was just like yes this is what i'm talking about like nobody else has the guts to do this but you do it you know boldly unapologetically and you say we just produce so much waste you know i just remember you saying that you know and even like even again like you you insert it everywhere like there was a like an elderly black man who was like asking me well how do I use chopsticks and I was kind of like trying to teach him and he kept saying okay honey okay honey and you were like she's not honey she is (laughs) a grown woman named Uh, Grace okay and I was just like "Fucking Julie (laughs) well I
3: hate that when people like you know I mean especially when you're in an intimate environment like that sure you know it doesn't take much to learn someone's name,
2: right, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and that whole
3: event, you know, another poet has asked me to, you know, work on that with them, says so grateful to, you know, help create that space, um, and I think, you know, we did originally call it, you know, a commemoration of the LA riots, and
2: right. and I was
3: educated, because people kind of pointed that out to me, that, hey, why are you calling it riots? It mm-hmm. should be, you know, it was a, you know, an uprising, or right. I asked, I asked, you know, started asking some other I was like well what what would you call it? and they said it was a rebellion you mm-hmm. know or and so it, it was an education for me to mm-hmm. kind of step back and see like how language really does you yes. know, influence you know mm-hmm. our, our frame of thinking and so on yes um, yes but yeah that was I mean I think we need to continue having more you know spaces like that it's
0: yeah you know
3: yeah. virtual or you know
2: in
0: person hopefully again soon yeah yeah and i'm just realizing now like uh coincidentally it's april and it's Mm -hmm. 23rd six Mm -hmm. days from now it will be yet again another anniversary of that um that let's call it an awakening you know Mm -hmm. it was a moment Mm -hmm. of reckoning that time um yeah and you know, I remember there, this was, I suppose, a teaching moment. Like, I was a master's student at the time at UCLA, and we had just watched uh, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing, um, which was, you know, I mean, it's, it's a real film, right? Like, that really does kind of portray some of that, that tension between the the Black community and um, Korean-American greengrocers. But, like, I, I remember, you know, just ki- kind of like... I think i had posted a blog post in response to the readings because i was part of the assignment uh the readings and the screening and i had said like oh like you know with the riots and blah blah blah. and then in class like my professor i don't know i i think it was an interesting teaching moment because she had put me on the spot by calling me out which i don't agree with i don't think that's um i don't think that is helpful in ensuring a safer environment for students in order to make sure that teaching and learning is productive and impactful but Mm -hmm. it was a moment that i won't forget because she was like well grace mentioned grace said some inflammatory things in the blog post by saying that these are a riot that this is a riot you know and then i was just like but it was a riot like they were breaking things and setting shit on fire And then she was like, well, have you considered other words like uprising or rebellion? Mm -hmm. And I was like, I had not considered those words because I nobody fucking told me about them, you know? Um, So like that was a very critical moment for me because while I agreed with her. Right. And while I was learning something and I was, you know, kind of coming to an understanding, Mm -hmm. I did not agree with her method of approach. Um, And that's something I try to be hyper aware of when i'm teaching students Mm -hmm. because students when they're young and they're in an institution where they're learning right Mm -hmm. they will make mistakes they're Mm -hmm. supposed to make mistakes that's the space where mistakes are allowed Mm -hmm. right and so to kind of um guide them and correct them but without making them feel attacked right Right, while ensuring that safer environment i think that is such an nuanced like very nuanced and difficult thing to accomplish Mm -hmm. and um yeah like I try to be mindful of that at all times did you have like moments like that when you were teaching in the past at all
3: well I think when I was teaching high school math back in Minnesota gosh this is so long ago Mm. um I think my goal was always because I would have students come in and this was high school so I would have students come in the first day of class they'd be like I hate math it's like okay that's okay it's okay if you hate it I, yes. I i'm not here to make you love it right i'm here to help you yes feel confident in it and to um be able to get the credits you need to graduate yeah, you know totally. and to to not hate the class like right. you know like i don't want you to have anxiety coming in here every day exactly. that was my goal you don't all have to walk out of here getting a's like Exactly. you know whatever do what you need to do but you mm-hmm. need to feel empowered and it's okay mm-hmm. to ask questions mm-hmm. um and I always had those students who were like well I can do it all in my head and I was like well I can't see in your head and part of the part of the grade is what you're putting on paper to show me how you got your answer right. um and I remember one student she you know and her parents would come to conferences and they'd say you know well she's liking your class you know she doesn't mm. love math but she likes your class and then by the mm. end of the class you know the, the term she said you know i don't love math but i can do it and i like your class and that yeah. to me that's better than any letter grade that somebody can ever get or any teacher evaluation because you know that yeah. i think a lot of people what i've learned over time is that nobody comes into their first math class hating it but mm-hmm. they have some kind of traumatic experience mm-hmm. or maybe mm-hmm. they moved and were placed in the wrong level and mm-hmm. then it just it just this domino effect because it's so like you know sequential That if you miss you know a certain you know topic or something you're just right. lost you know so
2: right.
3: I've heard that from you know friends and stuff too it's like either they moved and got placed in the wrong class or they had a yeah. bad teacher whatever yeah. that means bad teacher but yeah. I, you know, I, I had a bad teacher you know in college in a math class and we right. were just like barely surviving you know <laughs> just right We would go to class and try and take notes and then we'd have study group afterwards because we had to teach each other what we were supposed to have learned and, you know, prepare for the test. But, yeah, yeah, I don't I don't think, you know, shaming somebody in front of Mm -hmm. everybody like that is Mm -hmm. useful. You Mm -hmm. know, I mean, the teaching moment is there, but calling one student out is not not helpful. No, not at all. No, it doesn't. Well, and it doesn't even for the other students. I don't think it helps them feel comfortable in asking questions or taking risks, you know, exactly.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All of that. I'm so on board with you. And yeah, that is such a win when somebody says, like, I enjoyed this class, you know, Mm -hmm. because they're even if let's say, uh, you know, the the goal of the class is yeah to learn math, but they're learning other things. Right. They're learning human interaction they're learning humanity I feel like that is a way more important lesson than anything else you know and um, in my field like or in my area of study which is part of like arts and humanities studies um, like I, I don't know right now like I'm in the job market for academia and like I'm writing all these like teaching statements and all this blah 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 all this shit and I always write like I feel like college is a place where students learn how to become human you know and how to recognize humanity in others that's why we teach arts and humanities it's not just arts it's also the humanities part it's learn it's learning and teaching how to be better humans so yeah i think that's important to keep in mind yeah and sometimes we forget that right because we again we have the task we have the goal (laughs)
3: Well, and I like what you said, teaching humanity, because yeah. people would always ask like, oh, what do you teach? And and the, the teacher response was always like, I teach students, you know, mm-hmm. like it's mm-hmm. not about a subject or content, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously I, I taught mm-hmm. math to students, but it was like you're teaching people yeah. and they should be central to what you're doing and not concerned about like
2: yeah testing
3: it and stuff but then you know state guidelines, federal guidelines you always do have to teach to a test because
0: mm-hmm. you know right
3: there's those things too. So Because you know. the
0: world is fucked up. Yeah. <laughs>
3: exactly. <laughs> yes it is. It it is and I don't know when or if that's changing, but we still try to unfuck it as much as possible.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. We, try, we try by bringing our own utensils and bowls to the events. And <laughs> we, we try by saying, my name is Grace. I, mm-hmm. you know, my pronouns are she, her, hers, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we, That's. those are the ways that we try.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, uh, I, like, okay, so I, I remember going to your reading in LA. It was over in Santa Monica, I believe. And uh, I remember getting your book, mm-hmm. right? Not My White Savior. and uh we talked about this briefly uh you know and i asked you like how you came up with this title not my (laughs) white savior (laughs) right i mean come on right
3: did i tell you the story behind the title because it's not the original title
0: i that i know I, i i from my if my memory serves me correct it came about with you and your agent having a discussion right
3: well, do you remember what the original title was? I actually don't. What was the original title? So the original title is one of the poem titles, Fuck mm-hmm. You, White Barbie.
2: Mm, that okay. was the
3: original title. Right. Um, when my publisher, Rare Bird, said, hey, we're interested. Let's talk. Right. You know, let's pull together a contract. And so I was like, mm. great. And, um, and that title, actually, that poem, when I workshopped it um, with my class, the title of the poem was, like, Korean Barbie, you know?
2: Mm. And
3: so after I was done workshopping the poem, the my classmates and the instructor were like, I think you need a much stronger title, like mm. something like Fuck You, White Barbie. Everybody was crossing out the title Korean Barbie and writing mm-hmm. Fuck You, White Barbie across the top. And so mm-hmm. that was how that title for the poem came and the title for the book. And, you know, my publisher was just like, we really like that. And then I was like, okay, well, are there any, you know, legal reasons to not use this because, you know, there's copyright and trademark and stuff. So I, thankfully, I talked to an attorney and they Mm -hmm. said, you know, you can do this, but it's a risk. And they could send you a cease and desist letter, Mm
2: -hmm. you know,
3: just think about what you really want to do. And so Mm
2: -hmm.
3: I felt like it was probably, um, better to choose a different title. And so that's sure. why I ended up going with Not My White Savior. But even not My White Savior, like there's no poem yeah. called Not My White Savior. I don't even know if I use that phrase in a poem.
2: Yeah.
3: Um, but I just started going through the titles and just kind of sharing that with friends and stuff and just, you know, kind of mm-hmm. brainstorming with people and mm-hmm. coming up with like alternative titles. Yes. And literally I still remember I was getting out of my car to go to an open mic and for some reason, like Not My White Savior kind of came out of all of those brainstorming mm-hmm. um, discussions with folks and it just kind of stuck. And mm-hmm. I, you know, it's interesting because like the whole white savior mentality yeah. um, is very much present in adoption, whether it's mm-hmm. transracial, inner country, same race, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and just white saviorism in general even outside yeah. of adoptions
2: is oh, yeah. you
3: know a very real thing i think especially that we probably talked about a lot in the last mm-hmm. year with the racial reckoning the country is trying to have yeah. um but yeah i mean i think <clears throat> one of the things and it's in the poem for my mother that i was told when i was growing up <clears throat> excuse me was that if i hadn't been adopted i would have been either dead or living a life of prostitution on the streets of Korea you know and it's like you know I learned as an adult that from another adoptee who worked at Holt the agency that I was adopted to that that is actually some of the rhetoric that Holt will tell oh the God. agencies will tell the adoptive parents the prospective adoptive parents these things to kind of encourage them to adopt like if you don't do this you know then and kind of almost that guilt mentality too which i think is just kind of BS. Yeah. so <laughs> yeah. you know it's like well wouldn't there have been you know or you know people say well if you hadn't been adopted you would have grown up in an orphanage it's like well wouldn't there have also been the, op- op- the option for just my family to have stayed together
2: mm-hmm. you know
3: like why why wasn't that an option and we don't mm-hmm. you know some of us don't know but that should be an option and that should be Mm -hmm. the priority,
2: Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't
3: have to be one or the other. There could be many, you know, possibilities, Mm -hmm. but, you know, like to tell somebody, you know, if we hadn't done this, Mm -hmm. we would have been this. Like, how do you know? That's so hypothetical. Oh yeah. And it's also, you know, I think it's very, I don't know if it's shaming to the adoptee or just it's, it i think it kind of for me it shut down any option to feel any other way but grateful and so then when you do feel these other ways in addition to gratefulness what do you do with that when you feel like those emotions are wrong but i also don't believe that there's any such thing as a wrong emotion Um, you can't you can't help how you feel but you can you can choose how to you know behave and respond in in those emotions but i just remember thinking like that's not okay to tell somebody they can't be sad or angry you know i mean if someone Mm -hmm. you love passes away you don't tell them oh don't be sad get over i mean that's not right that doesn't help so um
0: it doesn't no yeah i I remember i I do remember reading that poem the one of, you know it was for all three of your mothers right mm-hmm. it was for your original mother it was for your foster mother and then your adoptive mother mm-hmm. and uh, I remember that particular those particular lines when she names the other potential options in the alternate reality like these would have been your only other options and I remember you writing back like um those are options here in America too for me yeah like i could just as easily become a prostitute or you know live on the streets i mean those are options anywhere you know Mm -hmm. um but yeah i i just like i loved that particular power right like Mm because that is the voice of resistance that is your agency stepping in that's your assertion that is corrective history as well Mm -hmm. right lived Mm -hmm. experience as history and you know it's like impossible it was impossible for me to read this without feeling, um, just so emotional throughout, you know, cause it's very raw. Mm-hmm. It's extremely like, just, you know, just like right there, like, just, you know, like as if my skin had just been peeled off and like, I just have my whatever bare bareness right underneath. And I'm just, I feel so vulnerable to, you know, everything around me, but you know, I, I thought it was encapsulated so beautifully and um, I feel like these kinds of books that have this um, this uh, refrain of activism embedded in there, I think that is immensely useful for other adoptees, right? Mm-hmm. Um, of course, it's also a choice for adoptees. It's part of their agency for them to decide to go and pursue the search for their original family or mm-hmm. to, you know, just stay here and live with their adoptive family and never bring that stuff up or you know whatever it's all a choice but um you know in your choice in your choosing you chose a book of poems that magnify your voice
2: mm-hmm.
0: and you know it's like i don't think people fully understand um that feeling of helplessness when you're a child right and you're living it, In essentially what feels like a stranger's house, a stranger's Mm -hmm. home, Mm -hmm. and they keep continue to gaslight you. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's a form of gaslighting to say that Mm -hmm. you have no other option but gratitude. I mean, my God, I mean, that that is understandable for any marginalized identity right mm-hmm. women definitely mm-hmm. understand that right right like, Right? You, yeah. know, you should be so you should be so grateful that we let you work here young lady how dare yeah. you complain yeah. about your salary what the fuck <laughs> you talking about you're getting paid <laughs> less than men shut up right
3: exactly yeah
0: and even most recently with the you know the anti-asian hate crimes mm-hmm. and there is this mainstream white supremacist. Um, it's not spoken. It's not said directly, but we all feel it. Us, yep. you, we Asian Americans being told to go stand at the back of the line because mm-hmm. the, the slavery stuff is priority, right? It's like, no, black people's issues are priority Asians. So you have nothing to complain about. You model minorities go stand on the back of the line. How dare you speak up? I mean, that wasn't said per se, but I felt it. All my Asian American friends felt it, but that mentality to say that there is a hierarchy or priority when it comes to specific categories of racialized groups in America, that is them gaslighting us to say, be quiet, this and that, when what we should be saying is, all of us, whenever we stand for Black Lives Matter, when we stand for Stop Asian Hate and Stop AAPI Hate, we're all standing for the same thing, which is we're standing up against white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Why don't white people understand that these movements are about them? Mm-hmm. They keep thinking it's about us making mm-hmm. it about us when we're making it about them. And right. that's the disconnect that drives me insane. Right, Yeah. right.
3: I mean, I, yeah, I hear what you're saying and have, have um, you know, had a range of thoughts and emotions over the last year. And at the same mm-hmm. time, you know, I do want to recognize that like the only people in this country who have ever been, qual- I don't know the right way to say this, but who have been considered less than a full person mm-hmm. are black people. Mm-hmm. Um, a few years ago, I guess I can attribute this to my then employer eliminating mm-hmm. my job I had some time to you know travel so I went to New Orleans and I went to um, the Whitney Plantation which mm-hmm. I, at the time was the only I don't know if it still is it's the only plantation to actually tell the story um, of slavery from the perspective of enslaved people and mm-hmm. the, you know having invested um you know a lot of resources into preserving the history and telling the history Mm -hmm. um and I found it just I was like wow this is the education that you know I feel like I'm constantly when we're talking about teaching I feel like I'm constantly having to teach myself the real history of this country because we didn't get it in high school or college and so I felt like that experience um yeah, I learned so much, I would go back again and just, you know, really trying to understand like what it was like on the day-to-day
2: mm-hmm. and
3: then also to see what, you know, what, ha- what his like when you're talking about, like you said, corrective history, you know, and just preserving history and accurate history because, mm-hmm. you know, our history classes are, you know, if One-washed. they're leaving certain things out, yeah, they're not... You know, you're, they, they're not accurate. They're inaccurate. Not to say what they're sharing is inaccurate, but if you're leaving pieces mm-hmm. out, then, well, the whole of it is inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Like, I never learned about um, the Japanese internment camps. I never learned about that in Ridiculous. Yeah. I remember when I was teaching and somebody was talking about the movie Snow Falling on Cedars. Yeah. And they said, oh, it's about the internment camps. And I was like, what in the heck is this? So that's yeah. how I learned. Thank I mean... God great Hollywood you know right. so um, I mean I guess the, you know those are other documentations of you know history but... a
0: lot of that goes overlooked yeah exactly. yeah and I, I completely agree with you that uh, black bodies were the bodies that were um, dislocated and mm-hmm. then forced into slavery um, through white through white people right mm-hmm. um and because of that history because of the enslavement of black bodies in america because that was the foundation of america mm-hmm. um any person of color in america became like it was just like oh like they're just just as they could just as easily be dehumanized right, right. Because are all they disposable that precedent yes yeah yes
3: and native americans and indigenous mm-hmm. you know mexicans
0: and you know yeah. yeah that's like that's another thing that americans don't fucking realize america committed three genocides right it was the native americans and then black bodies and mexicans like mm-hmm. we wouldn't have texas we wouldn't have california we wouldn't have i mean this whole notion of the frontier, right? Like when mm-hmm. people use this term frontier and they think it's like a great term, it's a powerful term. Like, do you know where the word fucking frontier comes from? It comes from colonization. It comes from taking land that doesn't belong to you. It comes from killing people who belonged there, whose land that belonged to. Um, so yeah, like Americans, you're right. They, we're, we're very... How do i say it? our educational system does let us down let us all down it's a huge problem even in, in college and uh you know i'm i'm teaching undergraduate students and i integrate so much from my day-to-day lived life you know things that i pick up just from attending an event things that i pick up from you know talking to people like you people mm-hmm. just around me who are activists you know that it's like, those kinds of things get integrated just by choice because I know that my textbooks, the textbooks that we have that are you know at our disposal, are just not enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, yeah, like again, even the word instead of saying um, uh, riot, saying rebellion or uprising. I mean, that's mm-hmm. something I learned as a graduate student, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, our our fucking educators really, our educational institutions really need. To reprioritize some things yeah Mm -hmm. absolutely for sure yeah
3: well and even just i think in the wake of the the shootings in atlanta and just you know well is it a hate crime or is it not it's like my initial response was if it feels like a hate crime it's a hate crime Mm -hmm. and just all the education that people were doing around asian american history because a lot of people don't think that we've ever experienced any Mm -hmm you know, problems and that's why like, we don't experience racism or whatever right. and don't even know who Vincent Chin was. Um, but yeah. I think, you know, like for myself, I never got to take Asian American studies in college or graduate right. school or ethnic studies that it yeah. wasn't, you know, the schools I went to didn't have those yeah. opportunities. Um, and so again, I've taught myself a lot of those things. But I think, you know, if people don't understand the history and yes. even... You know people think let's let's go back to the whole adoption theme again is that yeah. i think there are definitely white families who've adopted children of color who think that because they adopted a child of color that they can't be racist and it's like yep. well actually yeah i was a target of racism in mm-hmm. my own family my parents mm-hmm. you know are you know I, I i can't i mean everybody's got their own biases right no right. matter what your background is yes always and so um i think that you know, for someone to say like, well, I can't be racist because I adopted this child of color. It's like, well, right. you've got definitely some racial blind spots. Yes. Um, I've been watching This Is Us quite a bit lately. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you know, it's like some of it really resonates with me, some of it not as much, but I think it's really interesting how they have woven in the whole identity of, um, what's his name, Randall, as a transracial adoptee, as a black man, especially in this time and making things very relevant and um like yeah he's what in that in the show he's probably i guess in his 40s and Mm -hmm. because he hasn't talked about some of these things in the past it's you know it's like he's dealing with the trauma now and if you don't talk about it it'll come out in very ugly ways so yeah um yeah little bit it of a tangent there but yes i have been watching no. that show quite a bit like yeah. Yeah. it's just it's really interesting so. yeah
0: it does come out it comes out eventually you know mm. like i look at right now i'm looking at mia farrow and you know i'm just always shaking my head because when it comes to mia farrow and the whole suny previn stuff i'm just like i'm not team mia farrow nor team woody allen i am team suny previn all right I am team Suni Previn all the fucking way. I don't care about Mia Farrow. I don't care about Woody Allen. I care about Suni Previn and what she did as a grown woman to go and get agency because she grew up in an abusive family. She grew up with a woman who was a child collector. And you know, like the way that the Farrow empire. <laughs> Mm-hmm. it's a fucking empire. Like Ronan Farrow is a very powerful journalist and he has a lot of stakes at HBO. That's why they have that fucking um, docu-series, right? And it's like, why is Mia Farrow and the Farrows, like, why are they so hell-bent on incriminating Woody Allen right now? And I was just like, is it to hide something? Mm. <laughs> is it to make a louder noise, to distract from the fact that she made some big fuck ups when it came to adopting children from other countries that are non-white. And I would say yes, you know, like Mm -hmm. Mia Farrow's um, uh, Asian American son, right? Um, He wrote, he um, he wrote it on like Blogspot, you know, it's like not at all, it doesn't have the power of the Ronan Farrow Mm -hmm. platform. Um, but he wrote it. He said that, you know, he looked up to his older sister Sunni, and Mm -hmm. um, that Sunni suffered a lot at the hands of Mia Farrow, who was abusive, Mm -hmm. and that nobody in their family could ever speak up against Mia because she would make their lives a living hell. So these adopted children lived in fear. Mm -hmm. They had no control. They had no say. Anything Mia Farrow said, that was the go okay and it's unfortunate it's horrifying that a child like dylan farrow is in the middle of basically like a a fight between you know like mia farrow and woody allen essentially not only is dylan farrow a victim but i would say suny previn is also a victim she was a victim of the media at the time she was a victim of racism You know, so I am Team Suni Previn all the way to the day I die. I want to get her face tattooed on my arm. That's how much I am Team Suni Previn. Like I don't care about Mia Farrow. I don't care about Woody Allen. I don't care. I do have a lot of pain, like empathetic pain, for Dylan Farrow, and I have a lot of empathetic pain for Suni Previn. So that's my position on that.
3: Well, and the the interesting thing is too is that that is probably not, well, it's not an isolated incident, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I like what you said too about child collector, because there are plenty of child collectors, whether they're celebrities or not. Yeah, everywhere. Um, But also just how many adopted children have died in their own homes or at Mm -hmm. the hands of their adopters. And, you know, it's, I don't know when it will end. Maybe when adoption ends.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. um,
3: but a poet friend of mine—I'm gonna—I uh, want to talk about their book. I haven't seen—I've seen a few of the poems from it, but um, and, and and MJ is not um, not an adoptee, so I'm really really curious to read the whole book mm-hmm. when it comes out. But um, their working manuscript is called Bluff, B L U F F. Mm-hmm. um this is what they they um, wrote on twitter bluff is my working manuscript about the Hart family murder suicide and the events leading up to it persona and documentary poetics i can't wait to spend the next year working on this one um and i've read you know like i said a few of the poems that they've had published mm-hmm. um and so i'm very i know i'm going to read this book and buy it but yeah also it's just intriguing to me to have a person who is not adopted yeah. write about this experience especially yeah. in um at, in persona poems as part yes. of the the manuscript because i feel like those are um persona poems can be they can go so many different ways but i think they can mm-hmm. also for myself at least they can they can be kind of traumatizing oh yeah you know and so i think it'll be really interesting to to read the final um manuscript so anyway if anybody is interested um michael mj jones uh on, on social media and again the i don't know when the book will come out but the, mm-hmm. the manuscript bluff is in process and um, yeah. yeah i mean i know other other you know folks who have written about um you know the heart family who weren't who adopted because it hit other nerds you know and, oh my God. and 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 the two poet you know MJ and then this other poet I'm thinking of, you know, they're both black. So I think it Yeah, because there's that identity, it it doesn't matter if you're adopted or not. Like you still feel this, you know, there's something there that resonates that that calls a poet to, you know, voice something about it. Mm -hmm. Um so I, I think I think the manuscript, I think the book will be something that I will probably Prepare myself emotionally and psychologically to oh read God, yeah. it. Won't be one of those books that I just sit down and want to read, yeah. you know?
0: Yeah, in with a, in a cup one of afternoon. coffee. But,
3: but who knows? Maybe it will be because I know it will be very good. <laughs>
0: sure. Um, yeah. But yeah,
3: yeah. I mean, that that situation that those children died like right. Um, I think it was 2018, spring of mm-hmm. 2018. Yeah, and. Um, you know it was again, horrible that
0: that that event was so horrible
3: yeah and again you know people think that you know adoption is just this great thing and you know? that well that was just one case it's like well actually there are no, been many cases there's so many cases there's, there's been there's many so cases many. yeah and some of them are probably just not reported in they the go news,
0: underreported you know yes so because um, of a sense of shame you know mm-hmm. like um because sexual abuse is huge You know, when it comes Mm to adoptees and and children, like so many of them, you know, like so many stories of sexual abuse are there and people Mm -hmm. just overlook it. And then people I mean, that's also another line in your book saying, well, all said and done, they should still be grateful, right? Mm -hmm. Like they should Mm -hmm. still be grateful for the life that was given to them. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, man. A lot of kids can just do without sexual trauma and racialized trauma and Mm -hmm. just general abuse. They could just do without that stuff, really.
3: I think everyone. And I think, you know, just as an analogy, I mean, you know, like, yes, being told, like, well, just be grateful. And especially, you know, when you're not, when you're being told that by somebody who's in a position of power and Mm -hmm. leaving is very hard. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would just, you know, I would use as an analogy, just, you know, like, employment, you know, um, just because you have a job, if you're not being respected and treated, okay. you know, fairly and consistently with other employees, then why then it that is also an abusive situation. And yes. but again, it's hard to leave because you got to pay rent, you got to buy a grocery, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's like the no longer if you know, so. Anyway, I, I just I think about that as an analogy. It's like yeah. nobody wants to stay in a bad job But sometimes sure. we do we, yeah. it takes longer to get out than maybe you want yeah. But you know, it's I you know, if you're in an abusive situation in yeah. your home, yeah. you know leaving Especially if you are the child leaving right. is got to be horrifying and terrifying yeah. and even telling somebody who can do something about it is right. you know because even as an employee you go back to the employee situation, how many people will actually say something and speak up at work if something isn't right, because people are afraid of retaliation, you know, exactly. I've, you know, I've spent part of my time in HR and somebody, um, shared something with me and I said, you know, I really think I need to take this to, to somebody else and bring it mm-hmm. forward. But would you be okay with that? And they mm-hmm. said, well, can you guarantee that I won't get fired? Mm. You know? And I want that assurance that I'm not going to be fired. I won't be, you know, you know I won't experience backlash. And so when I, uh, when I talked to this other, these other individuals about them, and I said, you know, I think, you know, something needs to be done, I made them, this is all, of course, on Zoom. I said, you know, they're concerned. I said, I'm not going to share their name with you until, you know, we have this discussion about like that they won't get fired. And, mm-hmm. and that, you know, and they were doing exactly what you're doing right now. They're just like shaking their head and agreeing with me. I said, yeah. no. Can you tell me? I want to hear, I want right. to witness you saying they will not get yes. fired, yeah. you know? And so they, they the, oh, okay. So they said, no, they will not get fired. It's like, yeah, I'm not mm. going to, you know, out this person until, you know, I can have that assurance because I promised them that.
0: It's and it's, part it's of real, that. It's, yeah. you know, it's worrying systemic. about your career. It's structural, yeah. Exactly. It's exactly. systemically and structurally built against us so that we can't speak up. You know, and right. that is a great analogy, actually.
2: Yeah, And like I've been child. thinking
3: about yeah. just hierarchy in general a lot, because I know a lot of, um, you know, some people, they don't like, you know, how, you know, hierarchy and power, like how you flatten organizations and, and right. not necessarily take that power away, but, you know, maybe spread it around so that sure, there right. isn't mm-hmm. that. Mm -hmm. that structure that power structure Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. so i've I've been thinking about that a lot lately i don't know how it works like in the workplace but it has to be possible somehow
0: (laughs) there are examples of that you know, mm-hmm. I watched that uh magic Dr. Bronner's magic soapbox documentary. Have you seen that film? No, I haven't. It's a lovely film. I mean, you, you know of the soap, I'm sure though, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I love this soap. So many people love this soap. It's a hippie soap. Uh, but they have this policy where the CEO doesn't make more than 40 times what the lowest paid employee at their company makes.
3: Oh, wow. And oh. everything
0: in excess of that goes to charities.
3: Yeah, do you know who, um, so this makes me think of Dan Price.
0: Mm-hmm. He's
3: a CEO of Gravity Payments in Seattle. So I follow him on social media because he, yeah, yeah I mean, he lowered his salary so yes. that everybody in the company could yes. make at least $70,000 yes. a year.
0: $75,000 a year. It's not even that much, but it makes a huge fucking difference. Right. It makes and, a livable difference, yeah.
3: And even just the things he says on, on like. LinkedIn and other social media platforms, just that, you know, mm. how, you know, if you leave an employer yeah. and they are like, oh my gosh, you know, we're, you're leaving us high and dry. It's like, no, you, they should have like created a plan so that they were ready for people to move on, you know, right. and that it's not your responsibility to, to take care of all those things of yeah. course you want there to be a smooth transition and you mm. leave on a professional good note but right you know that's not your problem you don't have to yeah. you know take care of all of that if they didn't you know if yeah. you gave them ample warning and if they didn't you know listen and and create a contingency plan yeah. um and yeah i just like a lot of the things that he says about like trying to create some equality in the workplace and, yeah. and just you know respect for all employees no matter
0: what their level is exactly yeah he's like one of those like woke white boys who like went and did ayahuasca somewhere and came back enlightened and he's like okay this is what i need to do <laughs> you know and it's like yeah go you you do whatever it is that you need to do in order to become a better person right mm-hmm. i mean sometimes a lot of the times usually the reason why people act like assholes is because they have a chip on their shoulders because they're sad their needs were not met they their mm. They've been abused or traumatized or suffered something horrible and they're going to go out and be a blatant asshole. Like if you look at these very vocal, radicalized right wing people who happen to be of working class or lower middle class or middle class. What I hear when they're being very vocally and actively racist or hateful, what I hear is their own like somebody who abused them like somebody Mm -hmm. who lashed out on them and said why are you being such an ignorant hick you know that's like what ignorant hicks say to Mm -hmm. say like you know this kind of misogynistic thing or this kind of race racist thing when they were not in any way intending to be that particular category right And this is where um, the debate around intention for me becomes complicated because like up until very recently, I used to believe that intention did not matter, right? I used to really genuinely believe that, you know, I used to say like, you know, when somebody like made a mistake and like they said something that was like hateful towards, you know, one of my identities, I would be like, man, that is fucked up. You know, you're so ignorant, you know? And they're like, oh, I'm sorry. That wasn't my intention. I was like, your intention does not matter. It's like, let's say you're backing out of a a driveway and you hit somebody. You Mm -hmm. didn't intend to hit somebody, but you still hit them, did you not? And they're Mm -hmm. like, oh my God, I'm so fucking sorry. Mm -hmm. But it's like, (laughs) that's not not the way. That's not the progressive way at all. That's not the humane way. Intention does matter. It does Mm -hmm. matter. And then we have to be very, very like alert and mindful and see what is happening from from many different perspectives. Okay, yeah, what this person said might have caused me injury. So out of my injury, I may be reacting out of my ego because the ego is there to defend me. It's my protector. And mm-hmm. I, I lash out and say, you racist piece of shit. I could say that, or I could say, oh, okay, um, you probably didn't mean to, but I felt a little hurt when you used the word, um, I don't know, like oriental <laughs> just now mm-hmm. to describe me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's not because you know, of anything it's not because you intended it. I don't think you intended to hurt me because we're friends or we know each other. It's just that that term is now um, tainted with mm-hmm. very negative connotations and it's just not the... I mean as, as fucking Walter says in The Big Lebowski you know, like It's not the preferred nomenclature. Right. Mm -hmm. Like Asian American, please. Right. Mm -hmm. Like um, so, yeah, that becomes a teaching moment. Right. But not even I don't even want to say teaching moment because you just mentioned hierarchy. Like I am not above anybody because Mm -hmm. I learned something. I'm not. We are all equals. I just happen to have had the the resources and the time and the privilege to have access to these institutions and get the degree and get the knowledge. Mm-hmm. This person and I are, we're still people. Right. Um, I need to acknowledge this person's intention. And then I need to approach them in a way that does not make them feel defensive and hurt. Right. Because two wrongs don't make a right. Right. Mm-hmm. This person made a mistake. Let's just learn it and understand it as a mistake and recognize it as a mistake. And then just, speak from speak my truth from my heart and say oh that was a little bit hurtful i don't think you meant it but this is what i prefer you know and let's say you have that communication right i really doubt that a person who is a human being who who has good intention who is genuinely good i doubt that that person is going to go around using that word oriental again you know in a hateful way i really doubt it the only way for them to use that word in a hateful way with intention to hurt others will be if I lashed out on at them and said, mm-hmm. you racist piece of shit. You're so fucking stupid. Nobody uses the word oriental. What are you from the 1950s? You're a moron. Mm-hmm. Da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. That will definitely send them flailing over to the other side. Right. Find others who make them feel understood and make them feel better, who will go and comfort them and say, you know what? You didn't do anything wrong. Right, that bitch right. is fucking crazy. That <laughs> stupid gook. You know? And it and that's how it happens that is Mm -hmm. what's been happening Mm -hmm. so yeah i mean i don't know like i i think we on the left really need to um be mindful of that right and and i love Mm -hmm. what what you say about this like this breaking down of hierarchy you know there's like one example that i could think of is it's in a korean drama actually that i really like (laughs) Of course it's Uh, it's an Korean drama i learned so much from (laughs) k dramas i mean my god it's like changing me all the time but it's called search www a woman wrote it and uh there's this startup company where their whole like company culture is to address one another in formal terms so they don't use informal speech they only everybody it doesn't matter what your rank is everybody addresses one another in formal speech Mm -hmm. and uh, they don't even have titles necessarily right Mm -hmm. i think that's important to not give titles you're not a vp you're not an executive you're not a blah 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 Mm -hmm. you know you just have a name Mm -hmm. and everybody at the company they all um, have english names like anglicized names and that's okay. a, again it gets a little dicey there because like why are you anglicizing your korean names but the reason why they do it is because in korea culturally it's very rude to address one another by their names if you don't know them if they're older than you you know the the, the, the there is confucian system systematized structural cultural Uh, Things there. So they Mm -hmm. use the English name because it Mm -hmm. becomes easier to uh, Like call them by their names if it's an anglicized name So they all adopt anglicized names Mm -hmm. at the company and so um, those are some methods That I saw in a TV show. (laughs) It was an imagined scenario. Maybe it's based on some Realities that we live in but I was just like this kind of stuff is happening. It's happening with younger people and it's, com- it's happening with people who are trying to do better and, mm-hmm. and to not repeat the same mistakes that corporations have been doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I see hope in that. Yeah. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. Um, okay, so your book. Do you have another uh-huh. book coming out? Oh, gosh. Well, <laughs> you know,
3: that is always the recurring question that people ask. And so...
0: Well, this must have been a hard... Well, let me ask you, how long did it take for you to come up with this collection?
3: I tell people 15 years because mm-hmm. partly I never planned to write a book. Yeah. Um, I just, you know, I started hearing poets like Balfi, Ed Balfi... Mm-hmm. Ali, you know, i was born with two tongues i, I started hearing them and mm-hmm. thinking wow this really resonates with me mm-hmm. um it's like people who look like me who were not all necessarily adopted right. um but that were saying you know things that i felt but mm-hmm. i didn't know them you know mm-hmm. and so i just you know casually started taking a couple of writing workshops nothing serious just like oh there's a community writing workshop might be kind right. of interesting Um, but I never really, yeah, I didn't set out to be a poet or to be, you know, an author. Um, I didn't even start calling myself a poet until, well, I guess once I, once I was going to write a book, then I had to, you know, there was no kind of going back there. But, um, I just, I remember, um, when I moved from Minnesota to California, I just felt like there was something... Something that was going to be an avenue for me to change the world in a way that I hadn't discovered yet. And I didn't know what that was. I had no idea what that was. And the first year I was in LA I went to this social event and you know, it's it's it was social, it was networking, you know, people were, you know, giving out their business cards and stuff and I remember this one person, and I hopefully I will find their business card again somewhere who knows where it is now, but they were a palm reader or as she liked to say, a hand analyst And she must have asked me to say something about myself, because then she looks at my hand, and she's like, oh, you are going to be published. And I just Whoa. was like, oh, ha, ha, ha. And I walked away, and I was like, "Oh, she's not mm. <laughs> But then there was always this kind of tug in the back of my mind, of like, course. okay, well, maybe something's going to happen. I don't know.
2: Yeah. And then I
3: went to a seminar one week, and I just, you know, I was like, you know what, I'm going to write a book. And I didn't even know. I had no idea what the topic would be what the genre would be i you know i was not i just was like i'm gonna write a book and i don't know what it's going to be about Mm. so here we are with the Mm -hmm. the book and you know people do ask like you know what are you you know what are your plans you know going forward and so i do think that i will write another book at one point i thought it would come out five years after you know not my white savior but that's less than two years away sure (laughs) (laughs) so let's just say if anybody's thinking like okay no it probably will not be out and you know there probably will be more than five years between the two Mm. books which is fine you know um yeah i mean i think one of the things yeah one of the things that i didn't really tackle in not my white savior as much as i think that i would like to is Mm -hmm. spiritual abuse Um, Mm. There are just other pieces that I didn't write that I think because they were so traumatizing, I just didn't even, it wasn't even on my radar. Like, I kind of at one point had kind of made this mental list of like, here's different topics I want to make sure I covered in the book. Mm -hmm. And there were some things that I just, I was so traumatized by that I didn't even write about them. But I think the spiritual abuse piece can happen to anyone, whether you're adopted or not. But I think the intersection of it with adoption is is unique you know just a whole marriage yes. like if we hadn't you know we're the white saviors it's um true. but just also spiritual abuse in general That you know being told like well i can tell you haven't read your bible lately it's like really oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> how do you know how do you know <laughs>
0: yeah i mean or... isn't it isn't it a crime i mean isn't it a crying shame that spirituality is used as a weapon mm-hmm. when it comes to white christianity unfortunately you
3: mm-hmm. know well and so sad there was a movie that came out several years ago i believe it was like two thousand two or 2004 called saved
2: mm-hmm.
3: it's probably more like a b movie um mm-hmm. macaulay culkin is in it nice in also and i knew it was about like the church and stuff but i didn't know quite exactly what it was and so i went to see it with a friend and the mm-hmm. setting for the film is in a Christian school well I went to a Mm. Christian school so I was like oh my gosh you know I told my friends I said you know if you want to get to know me better watch this movie because much of this is my experience growing up Mm. in the church going to Christian schools and Mm. there's one scene in there in particular that I remember where you know there was the the really kind of like you know high on my horse you know kind of like up on my pedestal kind of Christian student and then the other one who was you know trying to do all the right things but also kind of open you know maybe more like Mm open-minded and the one who was a little more judgy like literally took the bible and Mm -hmm. threw it at the other girl and (laughs) i think the b word was exchanged somewhere in there and then the one who was more open-minded she said it's not a weapon but you're right. People do use like spirituality and scripture, I think, in a very weaponized way, which is sad. And why? It's so sad. I don't go to church right now because I I don't need to get up early on a Sunday morning or any. I don't need. To, I don't need to leave the house and go somewhere where I, I know I'm going to feel bad. Just be made to feel bad, like you know, where it's not a supportive environment.
0: You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me a little bit of, like, bipolar... I mean, not bipolar, like, borderline personality disorder. Mm -hmm. Because a borderline personality disorder will make the person that they love miserable and do everything... All of their actions say, like, oh, it's like driving that person away. All of their actions are, like, gonna drive that person away, but then they're, like, you know they'll say verbally like i love you don't leave me you know but it's like but you're actually like you're hitting me you're throwing shit at me you're spitting on me it's a very much a push pull right Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a very confusing chaotic thing and the only reason why i think it gets that way i don't think there's anything inherently wrong with christianity I think it's because the people get involved and they turn it into a dogma and then they, you know, try to enforce rigidity, rigid rules onto controlling Mm -hmm. people. Like that's Mm -hmm. where it gets problematic when spirituality should be about liberation, Mm -hmm. feeling Mm -hmm. like, you know, less suffering, like less human suffering. I mean, that is the goal of all spirituality essentially, you know, Mm -hmm. and whereas Christianity has elements of that, when it gets dogmatized, it just becomes unbearable. Mm -hmm. You know, I understand this trauma that you have. It's part of the reason why I don't go to church anymore either, you know, Mm -hmm. but I found a lot of comfort in Buddhism and Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's sort of been my thing as part of my journey these days. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I can't, I can't wait to hear, you know, or read your next book. Do you have like (laughs) a a writing ritual? No, no. No,
3: I, I mean, I know people who, you know, they write every day, they have, like, this practice, mm-hmm. and, you know, I've taken several um, virtual workshops over the last year, with, nice. which I think had the pandemic not happened, I wouldn't have been able to, you know, learn from some of the people that yeah. I have had that opportunity, so that is definitely yeah. a plus, but I don't have a practice, I keep telling myself I'm going to create one, but it hasn't happened, so. <laughs> You know, I think sometimes I write mm-hmm. when, you know, there's a lot inside and that's mm-hmm. my outlet mm-hmm. um, But I get that question a lot and mm-hmm. I don't know I Don't, you know, I know some very talented writers that will also tell me like yeah, I don't write every day I read every day. I mm-hmm. definitely read every day and yeah. reading something on paper. I think is important, you know the yeah. um, yeah. you know, he's another poet. He um he he has encouraged me to like read read something on paper because we're on the screen so much, mm-hmm. you know, and then reading something on paper. Like I think, you know, ebooks are interesting. I've never mm-hmm. had an e-reader, and I don't mm-hmm. know that, you know, I just I think a lot of people just like the idea of holding a book in your hand, you know, the physical mm-hmm. actual paper book. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I think reading things on paper is still very important.
0: I think it's lovely. Yeah. It's like, it's nice to have something tangible in your hand and then mm-hmm. flip the pages and just kind of like, yeah, engage with the book, you know, it's like mm-hmm. a, this physical connection that you can have with the book. I think that's important for sure. But yeah, um, I love what you say about reading every day. You know, mm-hmm. I, like, I think people forget that it's impossible to be a writer if you do not read. You know? mm-hmm. It's like it comes hand in hand. You gotta read if you wanna write. Like, Mm -hmm. you can't just fucking go to a cafe somewhere and smoke a cigarette and just write a a fucking masterpiece. It doesn't (laughs) work that way. And writing is also, like, I love the fact that you do workshops. Writing is not a solitary Mm -hmm. act. That's another right. BS concept. Like mm-hmm. it, it's no, no. Writers have to interact socially. Writers mm-hmm. always talk to other writers and ask, and you know, like workshop process is so important. going mm-hmm. to open mics as a poet. That's mm-hmm. so important. You know, mm-hmm. I do that in comedy.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, all of this is always a collective effort, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Exactly. I I love that you highlight those things. Mm. Yeah,
3: yeah. I miss. I miss. I think. I mean. I know there's plenty of. You know, virtual open mics, and I've had you know a few virtual readings in the last sure. year. But I think one of the things that I've I've said to other people, and they would agree, one of the things I miss the most about um, going to a bookstore or a venue for a reading, it's I mean, of course, the poetry and what you hear is so important, but it's all the other things that are in yes. that environment, meeting new people, or randomly mm-hmm. running into poets that you. usually only see at those readings or just finding that random bar to hang out at afterwards Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. you know i mean because to me those are such um important parts of you know learning from others and yeah and i just yeah i really miss those pieces and i don't know when we're going to get that back
0: yeah (laughs) soon hopefully i don't know it's it's coming back it's slowly coming back you know um yeah that's like it's like the the reading is just the hearth right or the location is the hearth and it's like yeah you're so right it is about like the whole human interaction and the social interaction like that's what it's about that's what gives us life that's what gives Mm -hmm. us energy Mm -hmm. and rejuvenation and um and a sense of community when we go to those spaces and then we see the people that we know and we get to like just exchange a few words and you know check in with one another like that's huge that was a huge part of like my day-to-day too you know and yeah to have the take you know it sucks but mm-hmm. it's coming back slowly and um good so like, i have one final question and we'll wrap sure. up but um when you go to these open mics as a poet and you read like what is it that you're looking for like are you looking for a reaction are you or are you just trying to read it out loud so you could kind of hear the music of the rhythm and sound it out? Is that the point? Like, what are some of the goals that you have or some of the benefits of an open mic reading as a poet?
3: I think there's a couple of things for me and this kind of changes over time. And I, mean, I mm-hmm. honestly, I don't think I've done, I don't know, like the open mics that I've read at in the last years when I was asked to you know be one of the you know, readers. And so Mm -hmm. I think an open mic that's virtual where you you actually have to sign up. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a little bit different. So I haven't done that as Mm -hmm. much. Um, But I think one is just, I did not feel that reading or performing a poem was my strength. So I felt like I needed to do it to get comfortable with my voice. Mm -hmm. um, So that I don't sound just monotone or something, you know? And so I really had yeah. to work on that. And I think, you know, I was in choir when I was in high school and so like kind of pulling out some of that as well. But like mm. there is a musicality to reading a poem, I think. Yes. Um, so there's there's that but also um I think the actual the the open mic where I actually found out about how to write my book um, I'd been taking some writing workshops in um in East LA and it was some pretty deep personal stuff. And it's actually the fucky white Barbie came out of those workshops. Um <laughs> it's at Avenue fifty And Fifth, of
0: course it's from East LA. Yeah,
3: yeah, it's from Avenue fifty and so I you know i went to this open mic once and i was like okay it's cool you know somebody had invited me and so then i went again i was like you know i want to i want to read some of this out loud because i felt like you know writing for me is very therapeutic but then to read it and share it with an audience who you know i don't really care if they like it or not but if one person would say hey that was great or get some mm-hmm. support you yeah, because i i seek out open mic spaces where i know like the audience will be supportive no matter what mm-hmm. what you do. You know, in mm-hmm. some way, they'll ensure, encourage you in some way. And so, for mm-hmm. me, that was part of like I just want some reassurance that what I'm saying and what I'm writing is it makes sense, and that it's mm-hmm. you know I I wanted some validation I think as mm-hmm. well. Um, mm-hmm. And I honestly don't even remember exactly which piece I read that night. It might have been the one about um, my name and so. Um, yeah, but also sometimes, you know, you go to these open mics, especially in LA, I don't, Mm I haven't experienced it as much here in the Bay Area, but there haven't, I think it's just a different vibe up here too, but in LA, Mm -hmm. some of those open mics, if you don't get there in time, you do not get on the list. And I lived in Long Beach, so for me to haul from Long Beach up to LA, you know, at least 30 to 45 minutes, you know, depending on traffic, and then not get on the list, you know, Yeah. But the thing is, it's like sometimes I would go to open mics and not sign up because, you know, that takes some energy to like, okay, you got to prepare a piece. You got to make sure you don't, you know, go over their time limit. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think sometimes just going to an open mic and supporting other people and hearing what they have to say. And you can be so inspired by so much of what you Mm -hmm. hear, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think you know, the whole poetry open mic scene is such a, it's such an interesting community, at least mm-hmm. the open mics that I've gone to. Um, that, I, you know, I think to go only for yourself mm-hmm. is, that's not what I I want, you know, I want to, you yeah. know, go and support others as well. Um, and it's, it's always interesting to, to go because I feel like no matter what Frame of mind I'm in, no matter what, how I'm participating or attending, I always take something away from it. I feel like my soul is always fed in some way,
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, and I take this back to, you know, some open mics that I went to in Minnesota, um, and there's one series um, at the Loft, which is a literary center in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Equilibrium, and it always mm-hmm. has featured, for more than 10 years now, has featured um, writers of color now um, mostly poets and you know I would go because I knew that I would come away feeling better and I just it was almost it was a very spiritual experience to me and it's almost like you know I don't go to church but I go to these poetry readings and that to me is better than church you know yeah. um and I think you know somebody will if, if there's something there's always somebody who's writing about the current time you know Mm -hmm. and so if there's there's something happening where i'm like struggling to make sense of it i feel like there will always be somebody who has the courage to write about it in a way that kind of like grounds me Mm -hmm. um to know that i can also try and make sense of the the spectrum of emotions and thoughts that i'm having so Mm -hmm. um i would just say to anybody who's never been to an open mic Mm -hmm. You don't know what you're missing, go Mm -hmm. and try it and just listen and just
0: take it in. I think that's such an important lesson, you know, for for a lot of people. It's like sometimes when we're stuck in our own bullshit, Mm -hmm. um, we feel victim to it. Right. And we feel trapped. Mm -hmm. And if we listen to a neighbor or a friend about their problems or... Their current process of whatever, it's like that you get uplift from that because mm-hmm. you realize you're not alone right. in your suffering. Yeah, everybody has their baggage and everybody's living through like living through it, getting mm-hmm. through it. That's beautiful. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, people forget that being a good listener, taking the time to listen, is immensely cathartic and healing for the self you know i mean that's a, that's a lesson that all comics need to learn because when we go to open mics girl we don't listen to anybody we're just <laughs> like when do we get our stage time huh we're all waiting why is this yep. idiot up here talking about bullshit i don't care about you know like we need to listen to one another we need to be better listeners and that's definitely been a goal of mine the last few years i'm I'm still struggling through. I'm still learning how to do it better. But mm-hmm. um, thank you for that reminder. Yeah, <laughs> I really appreciate that. Yeah,
3: no, I mean, I think listening is so powerful and to be listened to is so powerful.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and shortly after, what well, was the week of the shootings in Atlanta? And I was like, you know, it's like trying to work every day, but very upset about, you know, mm-hmm. what happened, but then also how it was being reported and so on. Mm-hmm. And um, at my job, we had um, a virtual lunch every Friday. And it was very casual, just like, drop in if you want. Sometimes there was a topic, sometimes there wasn't. Um, and I was like, I, I want to talk about this. And mm-hmm. I, I feel like we need to talk about it at work. Mm-hmm. And so um, I connected really quick with another um, Asian-American employee. And I just said, hey, what do you think about this if I just put something out on? our Slack channel about like, Hey, we want to come together and center the voices of Asian American women. You know, what do you think? You know, I said, even if you and I are the only ones that show up, I said to me, that would be worth it. And they yes. were like, yeah, let's do it. And so I, you know, we actually had, I think about this again, this is a small company, but a third of the, of the team was there mm-hmm. and it was very well received. Um, and, and again, I just, I just emphasize to folks, you know, Showing up and listening to us today is hugely meaningful. Like, you don't have to say anything today because, you know, like there were folks that showed up that were Asian American, there were folks that weren't Asian American that were there. And I just said, you know, I just appreciate that people showed up, you know, because mm-hmm. to me, that's like your presence mm-hmm. is solidarity. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, there's more than, you know, physically being in a space and listening, but I feel like that is a huge step just knowing that like oh people cared what i had to say and people okay. like to me that's so validating like oh you think that this is important enough to take time that you're you know instead of just eating lunch at your computer you know you, you're going to tune in and listen to what we have to say mm-hmm. um and i think you know one of the things that also came through and even now but i mean especially like in that week and in the time after um you know, it's like seeing the solidarity for like other folks, you know, speaking up as well, not just Asian-Americans speaking up. But, um, and what I saw, at least in my timelines and my feed was overwhelmingly seeing black women like showing up in solidarity and Mm -hmm. saying, you know, how, you know, to stand with us. And I just, Mm -hmm. it it wasn't surprising to me, but it was just really beautiful to see that. And I hope that I can you know, be as good of an ally, um, yeah. when it comes to, you know, issues for the black community. Um, but I just, yeah. I, I think that, you know, the interesting time that we're in with this country trying to have, and I say trying to have a racial reckoning, because mm-hmm. I don't really know that everybody's really doing it,
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> you know,
3: but mm-hmm. I mean, when we look at like, the murder of George Floyd, the Atlanta mm-hmm. killings, and just all the mass, you know, killings that we're having, Um, and I think it is a time for us to really come together and, and recognize where maybe, you know, you know, as an Asian American, maybe where I haven't and, and how to correct that. But, um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've had to take a step back and, and, and learn and, and continue to, I think it's one of those things where you can't just say like, Oh, I'm an ally. And then that's it like it's a it's something you have to keep working at and i think the best definition of an ally a friend of mine gave me you know several years ago is that i can say i'm an ally but i think the true definition is when the group that i'm trying to support when they say that i'm an ally because i'm probably messing things up (laughs) you know and even if You know, a few people from the group say, yes, you're an ally. There might be others that say, no, she's not because Mm -hmm. what she said and did, you know. So just Mm -hmm. always trying to, you know, instead of spending energy calling myself an ally, like what am I really doing to be anti-racist and to be an advocate? And, you know, and that would be my question to many of those employers and organizations last summer that came out with their statements of solidarity. It's like, okay, what have you done since then? It's been almost a year and what have you done since then, you know, it's not just, yeah, solidarity is not an event, it's a journey. Mm -hmm. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's a transformation, you know,
2: Mm -hmm.
3: individual, I think, as well as organizational. Mm
0: -hmm. Well said. I couldn't have said it any better. Yeah. Um, It's not about the title. It's about your actions. Exactly. It's about, yeah. Like, you know, how honest are you with yourself? Mm. Yeah. All of those that's
3: things. How honest are you with
2: yourself?
0: And I think also, mm. you know, I've
3: heard people say, Well, I don't know what to do. And it's like, well, at least you're asking that question. And I don't mm-hmm. think that there's any action that's too small. You know? I think that there has to be you know, it is it isn't just we're going to change overnight. You know, it is incremental mm-hmm. change. You know, one employer that i worked at we actually looked at i think it was like directors on up and we looked at the demographics and it's like even if we filled every open position with a person of color it would have taken us like beyond my retirement to reach any sense of balance with the demographics otherwise it would still be white dominated. um Mm -hmm. so it's like no it's this does not change overnight.
2: one more thing i want
3: to say about the whole like just in all the discussion the asian-american you know community and Mm -hmm. everything is that again not surprising but just a re, another cycle of disappointment i think is that oftentimes in the dialogue around the asian-american community and our identity is that i often hear people and i was actually just in a session this week you know people saying like, you know, well, our parents and, you know, our grandparents are like this and you know how, and it's like, you're excluding an entire population of transracial, you know, adopted Asian Americans. And that Mm -hmm. I think is a continual um, slight, whether it's intentional or not. But I also feel like at this point, there's no excuse for it, you know, that people need to understand that like when you say things in a certain way you are excluding people and Mm. you have to you know understand that there's a large majority of us you know I think I don't know the exact numbers but I'm guessing there's at least a quarter of a million transracial Mm. Asian adoptees in the U.S. Mm. probably more um, Mm. that we grew up with white parents and so we don't know what Asian culture and traditions are like so you know I think there's Opportunity for us to think about how to speak more inclusively when we talk about the Asian American community, and also, also though, to look at how diverse we are. You yeah. know, we are not a monolith. You know, not <laughs> at all.
0: Yeah. So, anyway, a whole entire continent with many many countries. Exactly. Yeah, that's a uh, that's an important insight. So I appreciate that. Thank you and um yeah and i i loved the like i wrote about it in my dissertation like i'm finalizing my dissertation today actually Mm -hmm. and uh i wrote about that the ends of adoption the uc irvine um symposium that we Mm -hmm. had like Mm -hmm. i think four years ago now almost at uc irvine yeah and uh like i'll never ever forget that event because it was not just academic it was one full of heart Mm. it was one full of you know just everybody's like pain you know Mm. just there Mm. and um I'll never ever forget it because it's like it was impossible because you know how academics are we just like try to keep it dry try to like leave out all the sentiment (laughs) blah 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 you know we do our best to to keep cool but in that during that symposium everybody was crying everybody there wasn't a single person who did not emote right Mm -hmm. it was just like impossible to get through that symposium without feeling emotional right because it has to do with like a very basic human need which Mm -hmm. is just some care some love Mm -hmm. you know just some understanding and how all of those things, those very basic things just got so complicated mm-hmm. out of like war and mm-hmm. colonization mm-hmm. and right. white savior mentality and white supremacy and all of those things. It just like some very, very simple things like connection. It just got complicated out of all this bullshit. Right. And um, yeah, I was just like, you know, like sometimes I'll even just think back to it. I'm just like, yeah, it just like, gets so emotional for me it's Mm -hmm. it's hard yeah Mm -hmm. so uh i love the work that you do you know and not just you know with your poetry but you know your local activism your day-to-day activism and um yeah i mean you keep doing you you know you're like such a strong person and yeah every time i every time i talk to you i always like learn several things i always have several massively enlightened <laughs> takeaway so thank you for that and thank well, you thank for you. taking the time with me today
3: absolutely i mean i've enjoyed our conversation i've been taking notes to different things that you said that i was like i have to remember about your know, corrective history <laughs> and teaching humanity i mean yeah it's, it's always good to to dialogue with um you know i think with people that we have some synergies but also that maybe we come at things from different angles mm-hmm. and you know from each other so you know. always, always and happy and belated is... earth day since since we brought that yeah. up. i actually ha- i went to an earth day <laughs> fair yesterday and they were handing stuff out in plastic and i'm like <laughs> i was like why <laughs> they're like hi would you like some carrots and celery i was like sure but it's in plastic like little plastic baggies of uh, and they're like yeah we know and i'm like <laughs> so why are you here with your plastic baggies of carrots and celery? And, but I did take some because, you know, it's healthy food. But then again, I was like, why is there plastic at this Earth Day Fair? I don't, I did not understand that at all. I felt very, I feel actually a little hypocritical having taken the plastic baggies of veggies,
0: but. But, you know, what? it's hilarious. At the very least, it's hilarious. It is. We'll we'll give him that it's like yeah. oh my god
3: <laughs> it, it was funny though when they were like yeah we know like
0: <laughs> yes we know and it year, can't be helped
3: yeah and maybe partly it's because of covid you know they don't want to just have a veggie bowl sitting out there in your veggie potter that has
0: a big i but, think it's a big proponent yeah yeah but so. still
3: <laughs> yeah <laughs> i was like wait i thought today was earth day <laughs>
0: Great way to celebrate the Earth by killing the Earth even more.
3: Yes, with the little (laughs) plastic baggies
0: of celery and carrots. Oh, my God. All right. It's great talking to you, Jelaine. Yeah, it's great talking to you, too, Grace. Next week, we're going to talk about one of my favorite Korean dramas of all time called Feta to Love You. I wanted to talk about this show right after uh, discussing successful story of a bright girl, which I talked about on the episode with Ezra Blackrock. But, uh, you know, I wanted to celebrate AAPI Heritage Month, so I kind of put it in the back until... next week so we have a great guest for next week as well and i'm really excited to talk about that show with you guys so stay tuned for that um watch the show if you want it's on vicky i believe so check it out it's a really really good show it's campy as hell i mean if you want to watch like the campiest show ever like this is like the camp level on this show is like 125 it's really really high so if you want to watch a show like that this is the one okay like it's like a psychedelic trip honestly um so enjoy that one and then we'll talk about it next week folks if you haven't subscribed to my youtube channel i'm begging you please subscribe to my youtube channel like what is the deal why aren't people subscribing to my youtube channel just do it please for the love of god for fuck's sake Um, i am full on in the thick of writing my book right now so send me your support emails send me your questions whatever you want to say say it uh, in an email send it to kdramaschool at gmail.com uh follow me on tiktok twitter and instagram at kdramaschool You guys, it is such a pleasure being here every week with you all. It is a lot of fucking work. I will admit it's a lot of fucking work every single week. It's like I'm dreading the editing process because it's so time consuming. But I think about my listeners i think about you all and i think about how good i feel whenever i actually finish editing an episode and uploading it and then having it air live so i think about those things and that's what gets me through so thank you for your support thank you for listening and i will see you all next week